I was watching the Winter Olympics in Beijing, China, like many of you, this past February. One of the enduring images from those Olympic Games was the image of Michaela Schifrin sitting in the snow on the side of the slope, a gold medal favorite in five alpine events, had failed again. Eleven seconds into her first giant slalom run, she crashed and was out. Five seconds into her first slalom run, she missed a gate and was done. It was a heartbreaking end to the first two races as she wrestled to grasp what had happened. To be human is to know failure. Sometimes we fail because we try too hard, like Michaela Schifrin. Sometimes we fail because we don't think about what we are doing. We do something dumb. A young father in Portland, Oregon, was playing with his one-year-old son in the family backyard one very hot summer day. It was so hot that he decided to gently spray his son with the garden hose. He never thought that the water in the hose, after sitting all day in the hot sun, would be scalding. The toddler was hospitalized with burns over 75% of his body. The young dad sat there in the emergency room, enduring the stares of people who were obviously thinking, how could you be so dumb? He didn't do it to hurt his son. It was just plain stupidity. Failure can result from our stupidity, or failure can result from our stubbornness. Sometimes we fail because we ignore or reject the truth of God's word and violate his laws for life. Confession of our failures helps us get our perspective back again. We continue our study of Nehemiah 9, a great chapter on confession, with the knowledge that we are all failures in life. Every one of us, we are all failures in life by God's standards. Confession helps us remember the reality of our failures. But confession is more than the confession of our failures. It is the confession of God's faithfulness. The same event in our lives teaches us both our failures and his faithfulness. Nehemiah 9 teaches us that God's love is greater than our failures. My friends, grab on to that truth. Hang on to it for dear life. Focus on God's great compassion because it will get you through your worst failures and your lowest times. Let's begin by looking at the expression of God's love in Nehemiah 9, verses 9 through 15. The expression of God's love. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a long Levitical prayer in the context of corporate worship. I want you to notice as we go through this prayer that the emphasis is consistently on God's sovereign choice. Throughout these verses, God is the subject of the action, except when there is confession of sin. The Levites pray, You saw the afflictions, you heard the cry, you performed the signs, you divided the sea, and on and on the confession of God's greatness and God's faithfulness goes. It is a recital of love. 
God's love. Our faith is grounded in God's choice. There are two ways in which God expresses his love toward Israel in these verses. He expresses his love through his preservation and through his provision. First look at verses 9 through 12 at God's preservation. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is in this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. We are taken all the way back to life in Egypt, and God's deliverance of his people from slavery. God saw their pain. God heard their cries, and God saved them from their enemies. So often we neglect to praise God simply for his gracious preservation of our lives. God's heart is moved by our cries for help because he has a heart of love for us. Next, in verses 13 to 15, we see God's provision. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and laws. Through your servant Moses, you provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger you brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. We must misunderstand one purpose of the law. God gave his law as an act of grace. It was given for man's protection. God set boundaries not because he hated us, but because he loved us and wanted to protect us from ourselves. God instructed us how to live because he loved us. Later in the wilderness, God provided food and water for the people. These two were expressions of God's love. Each time they had a need, God was there to provide for that need. God gives direction, instruction, and assistance whenever his people need the help. Many years ago, when our special needs daughter Katie first learned to ride a bike, I would ride behind her so I could encourage her whenever the path got a little rough. I would call out to her, You're doing great, Katie. I'm right behind you. I would give her directions and reinforce the safety rules. After a few rides, she asked to ride behind me. Soon, I heard her voice saying, You're doing great, Dad. I'm right behind you. I looked back 
and there she was bouncing along, proud as punch. Aren't I doing great, Dad? she said. One day I was nearing the top of a hill when I heard her yell, Daddy, help me! I turned around to see her trying her best to hang on to her bike, all red in the face as she struggled to keep pedaling. Obviously, I dropped my bike and ran back to help her before she fell. My friends, think about it. If my heart as a human father is moved by the sight of my daughter in need, how much greater is God's heart moved by us when we cry out to him in our need? Furthermore, we can think of God's laws as safety rules, road rules, to protect us. God's provision and God's preservation are both expressions of his love for us. We've looked at the expression of God's love in verses 9 through 15. Now, in verses 16 through 21, we see the faithfulness of God's love, the faithfulness of God's love. Real confession begins with honesty and never glosses over our sin to get to the Savior. Real confession is truthful about our own failures. Take a look at verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. God's people acted arrogantly. The same word is used back in verse 10 to describe Pharaoh. Sometimes God's people act no differently than the enemies of God, despite being the recipients of God's gracious provision and preservation. The word means to boil up, seethe, act proudly or presumptuously. That is us. We too are stubborn and stiff-necked. The term stiff-necked is borrowed, of course, from the attempts to drive stubborn oxen who resist all guidance. They're stiff-necked. That is us. We fight God every step of the way. We don't like submitting to him. We want it our way. We become unteachable and stiff-necked. The prayer goes on to describe specifically how they sinned. They rebelled in the wilderness and tried to go back to Egypt. They made a golden calf and worshipped it instead of God. These are specific sins. Confession needs to be specific, not generic. Some Christians think, well, well God is smart. He already knows all about our failures, so we don't need to tell him. Not true, not true at all. That is not confession. Confession deals with specifics, even though God already knows, and we know that God already knows. Confession is agreeing with God about what we both already know is true. Now, in verses 17 to 21, we see the contrast. In contrast to all that we know about ourselves, here is what we know about our God. 
You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. As the saying goes, God has a big eraser. And I sure am glad, aren't you? Five times, verse 17, 19, 27, 28, 31, five times in this great prayer, God acts according to his compassion. The Hebrew word is related to a word that means a mother's womb. It refers to a deep love, such as the love a mother has for her little baby. It is also used of fatherly compassion. Psalm 103, verse 13, uses this same Hebrew word when the psalmist writes, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There's an interesting story about Moses in Exodus 33, where he is on the mountaintop speaking with God. Moses asks God to show him God's glory, and God agrees. The text says that God showed compassion, compassion to Moses in that moment. It's the same Hebrew word for compassion. The love of God is grounded in the choice of God. God chooses to love what is unlovely. God chooses to love me. He chooses to love you. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He, God, he chose us in him, Christ. God chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. My friends, God chose to love us before we were even born before the world even existed. God chose to love you like a mother loves her baby while still in the womb. Three times in these verses, verse 17, 19, and 31, three times we are told that God did not forsake them. When used of God, the word can mean to abandon or leave. Now, you know that God punish them by making them live in the wilderness for 40 years. But that does not mean that God abandoned them. Even during their wilderness wanderings, God never abandoned them. Even when they made a golden calf, God still guided them through life by the pillar of fire. God still cared for them. God protected them from even the natural processes of physical deterioration, according to verse 21. Their feet did not become swollen. The word become swollen can mean blistered. 
God protected them from blisters even in their rebellion. God continues to love us even when we reject him to do our own thing in life. That, my friends, is the faithfulness of God's love, and the faithfulness of God's love leads to the fruit of God's love in verses 22 to 25. God gave them kingdoms when they took possession of the land of Israel, according to verse 22. Look also at verse 25. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. The fruit of God's love is God's blessing. God loves to bless those he loves. Just look at what God did for the nation of Israel when they entered the land. He blessed them with material prosperity beyond their wildest dreams. They didn't even have to work for it because the wells were already dug. Cities were already fortified, the fields were already cultivated, the houses were already built, the vineyards were already ripe, and the orchards were already bearing fruit. They didn't have to wait to enjoy the fruits of their labors. They just went in and took possession. Like a ripe plum, it fell into their hands for their enjoyment. This is the God of the Bible. He is a God who loves to give good gifts to his people. He gets no enjoyment out of punishment. Have you ever considered the fact that God enjoys it when you enjoy his gifts to you? It may actually be an act of worship to enjoy that new boat. Did you ever consider the fact that pleasure itself is a gift from God? We as Christians sometimes get so squizzled up by guilt that we become churches full of prune faces. We need to learn to enjoy God's blessings, because in that enjoyment, you are enjoying God. And enjoying God is worshiping God. If I give my daughter a gift, one of the greatest ways to say thank you is to enjoy the gift I have given her. When my girls enjoy the gifts, it gives me pleasure. It's the same way with God. When we enjoy God's gifts, we enjoy God. And that brings him pleasure. And that is worship. But, my friends, there is, of course, a very real danger in pleasure. Look at verse 25 again. It says, So they ate, were filled, and grew fat. They ate, were filled, and grew fat. The verb for were filled is used only four other times in the entire Old Testament. It implies physical satisfaction with spiritual insensitivity. You see, there is a real correlation between material prosperity and spiritual insensitivity. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but it often is. 
The word for grew fat has the same negative connotation to it. In Job 15.27, the ungodly man has covered his face with his fat. The eyes of the wicked in Psalm 73, verse 7, gleam through folds of fat. In Psalm 119, verse 70, the psalmist writes that the heart of the proud is gross like fat. Material prosperity brings real spiritual danger. Yes, we can enjoy the fruits of God's love, but we quickly become jaded by those very same fruits. We become spiritually insensitive. The fat of our prosperity gets in the way so that we no longer feel the gentle prodding of the Spirit of God in our lives. This is exactly what happened to the children of Israel, and it is often what happens to believers in our day, which is why we need the discipline of God's love in verses 26 to 31. The discipline of God's love. The people of Israel disobeyed God and rebelled against his rule. The prayer goes on to speak to God about their history of rebellion in verses 27 and 28. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them in the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. Many times you rescued them according to your compassion. Material prosperity and self-satisfaction breed disobedience and rebellion. Rebellion requires God to discipline the nation of Israel. The recurring pattern is the same throughout the entire prayer. God delivers them from their enemies, but they sin against God. God warns them, and they rebel. God punishes them, and they repent, and they cry out to God for help. God then restores them, and they sin again. They rebel again. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder and a whole lot worse. Three times in these verses, 26, 29, and 30, three times, God sent his prophets to warn them. The Levites say to God in verse 30, You bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. The word translated admonished means to warn, charge, or exhort solemnly. Three times in these verses, 
God warns them because of his great compassion. Verse 27, 28, and 31. God warns us of his judgment because he loves us so much. He doesn't want to administer the judgment. He warns us so we won't have to be judged. God kept bearing with them over all those years of sinful rebellion, that pattern, that cycle that they went through. God kept bearing with them because of his great love for them. And he does the same for us. God is long-suffering toward us in our rebellion and sin too. Look at verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, there we have it again, love, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. God did not annihilate them. God did not forsake them. You see, God had made a promise to King David many, many years earlier. That promise is repeated in Psalm 89, verses 30 to 37. God says that even if the sons of David forsake him, God, and violate God's commandments, he will never eradicate the nation of Israel from this earth. That's his promise. He will not break his promise to David. He will never eradicate or allow Israel to be eradicated from the face of this earth. God says in Psalm 89, verses 34 to 36, these words. My covenant, God is speaking, my covenant, I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterances of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Wow, what a promise. But God also says in that same passage and elsewhere, Second Chronicles 12, verses 1 and 6, and Second Chronicles 15, 2 say it. God says that if they disobey him, then he will punish them, even though he will never abandon them. Punishment and abandonment are not the same thing. In other words, the Babylonian captivity 2,500 years ago and the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century are not examples of God's abandoning the nation of Israel. They are examples where God disciplines the nation. Restoration is always available because God will never violate his promise to David. The discipline, like the blessing, is an act of love. My friends, we have this odd notion of love, which the world has taught us. We, we learned this from the world, not from God. Let the children do anything their little hearts desire, because that's the loving thing to do. But it is not. That is not love. In fact, it is the very opposite of love. It's the most unloving thing we can do for our children. 
Love must be tough, as James Dobson said, especially in the context of parenting. Clear boundaries need to be set and enforced, or else the child will never respect you. When a toddler challenges parental authority by deliberately disobeying, he is saying to Dad, How tough are you anyway? If Dad does nothing, he is saying to that little toddler, I'm just a big blob of jello. There's no respect. The same is true for our relationship to God, our Heavenly Father. If Dad warns constantly, If you do that one more time, you will be grounded, but he never follows through, then he is not loving. He is lying. It's the same with God. A God who warns but never disciplines is no more loving than a father who nags but never corrects. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is compassionate and merciful. He waits and bears our rebellions and rejections while all the time warning us in love to stop our wicked ways. But there comes a time when God backs up his words with his actions. If he didn't, then he wouldn't be much of a God, and he certainly wouldn't be a loving God. The biblical picture of God is a God who disciplines his children because he loves them. But that doesn't mean he's abandoning them. You see, God's love is greater than our failures. What God did on a national scale with Israel, he still does on a personal scale with us. God's compassion is so great that he can overcome anything that you have done. He has demonstrated that love through 4,000 years of Israelite history. We have 4,000 years of proof because Israel is still here, despite the many attempts of evil people to eliminate them from the face of the earth. There's a company that advertises that they have 100 years of history to prove that they are reliable and you can trust them to stand behind their products. Well... God tells us here that he has 4,000 years of standing behind Israel, despite their rejections and rebellions. Today, Israel is not following God, yet he still stands by his promise. The great hope of Israel is grounded in the great love of God, who chose to love them and promised never, never to forsake them. And God has 2,000 years of standing behind the church of Jesus Christ despite our sins and failures. That same God keeps reaching out to us in love. His great compassion won't ever let you down, my friends. Some of you may be thinking that you committed the unforgivable sin. You despair of finding any forgiveness. I am here to tell you that God's love is so great that there is not a sin you could commit that his grace is insufficient to cover. He loves you so much that he continues to preserve your life, care for your needs, and yes, yes, discipline your sins. But his love won't let you go. 
All you have to do is confess your sins honestly to God. Put all your eggs in his loving basket of grace. Stop trying to hide behind, behind some false pretense. Agree with him that you are a sinner and his love can save you. Then come to him and he will welcome you into his arms. His first words to you will be, What took you so long, my child? What took you so long? I was here all the time. What took you so long to come back to me?